We noted last week that Revelation 13 contains the vision of two different beasts. The first is the beast from the sea, starting up in verse 1. And we looked at him last week and determined this is the Antichrist, the, the man of sin, the lawless one, Paul calls him, who will come. But you can see, starting in verse 11, there is another beast that comes up out of the earth. And he is distinct from the first. So verses 11 through 18, we'll see what John has to tell us about him. Revelation 13, verse 11 says, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. And he exercises all the power of the first beast before him and causes the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he does great wonders so that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men and deceives them that dwell on the earth by means of those miracles which he had the power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by the sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. And that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that has understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred, three score, and six. Now, if we follow along with John's vision, we'll remember that at the end of Revelation 11, the, the seventh trumpet sounds, the coming of the Lord Jesus in power is at hand. And then Revelation 12 opens with this vision of a child that is about to be born and there is a great red dragon poised to consume that child, though he will not succeed. This dragon, John says back in Revelation 12, 9, is the old serpent called the devil and Satan. So Revelation 12 recorded this cosmic conflict, this war that's waged by Satan against God and goodness throughout history. Revelation 13 begins with the unfolding, this sort of climactic events of that conflict. In verses 1 through 10, in Revelation 13, a beast rises up out of the sea and assumes great military and great political power. And yet we know the Antichrist does not rise on his own. He is given, verse 2 says, he is given power and authority from the dragon, right? Satan is the great power, the authority behind the coming Antichrist. And now in our text we see another individual at work. Just like verse 2 says that the Antichrist, right, the beast from the sea, exercises the authority of Satan. 
Now in verse 12, we see this beast from the earth exercises the authority of the first beast before him. So in short, the Antichrist rises to political and military power through the work of Satan and utilizes the evil authority given to him by Satan. But in verses 11 through 18, it describes a second individual who rises to religious power through the evil authority given to him by the Antichrist, right? So the first beast, the Antichrist, is a wicked military and political authority, and the second beast is equally wicked, but a religious authority commonly called the false prophet. In some ways, Revelation 12 and 13 reveal this sort of unholy trinity of characters who blaspheme God's name and fight against God's righteousness. This is not the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but instead this is Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. And within their scope of power, they deceitfully present themselves as counterfeits of true righteousness counterfeits in many ways right king jesus is going to come and establish a kingdom but here satan is trying to establish a kingdom instead jesus is the one who died and rose again but the antichrist presents himself as one who had died and rose again right he had that fatal wound and then still lives the false prophet we're about to see in verse 11 rises lamb-like and he does great miracles leading people away from God and into idolatry. As Jesus said it, as he started to conclude the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, verse 15, he said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Right? Jesus said there will be those who make themselves appear righteous, make themselves appear and claim to be speaking on behalf of God, but they're secretly wolves in sheep's clothing. They seek to devour unsuspecting victims. Throughout time, at every point in human history, such people have existed, and they continue to exist today. Uh, Peter tells us in 2 Peter 2, verse 1, there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. Or if you remember in 1 John 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now already is in the world. Right? So this false prophet of Revelation 13 is sort of a, a, a paradigm, an ultimate example of all these scriptural warnings about false prophets. And he is fueled by and encourages the political power of the Antichrist through his own religious power. This false prophet uses his religious power to encourage the worship of the Antichrist. 
So this morning we'll see what John has to say about this false prophet by looking at his appearing in verse 11, his authority in verses 12 through 14, and his actions in verses 15 through 18. The false prophet's appearing, verse 11, says, I beheld another beast coming out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. The fact that this beast arises from the earth, while the first one, the Antichrist, arose in John's vision from the sea, is that's something that's, that's probably mostly lost on us, but in biblical times, the idea of the sea was that it represented this sort of churning chaos. And the fact that the second beast rises up out of the earth and not the sea seems to suggest something calmer or milder. I wouldn't expect violence like the rise of the Antichrist, whose head was wounded and later healed, but something quieter, something more appealing. What's evident is that this individual is not what he appears to be. He is one of those wolves in sheep's clothing that Jesus warned about. He has, John says, two horns like a lamb. Now, in in prophetic terms, horns almost always picture power, but this this picture isn't a a lot of power, right? Certainly, it's not like the seven-headed, ten-horned beast up in verse 1, something less than that. Everything here points to a milder, less imposing individual than the first, right up until the point where he opens his mouth, and then everything changes. He is he's betrayed by his own words. This creature is lamb-like, John says, but as soon as he speaks, a, a dragon's voice comes out. He's going to claim to be a prophet, but the words are the words of a dragon. It's the words of the Great red dragon from the previous chapter. He comes speaking Satan's words, not God's word. It's clear this individual is deceptive, like many false prophets. He might appear harmless until the trap is sprung and he's devouring his victim. He's that ravenous wolf that Jesus pictures. Just as Jesus said in, in John eight forty four that Satan when he speaks, speaks a lie because he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. When this beast starts to speak, it is Satan's words. He, he's a prophet, all right. A prophet promoting the words and works of Satan, not the words and works of God. But look, he's, he still has this authority. Look at his authority, verses 12 through 15. And he exercises all power of the first beast before him and causes the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he does great wonders so that he makes fire come down on the, from heaven on the earth to, in the sight of men and deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth, that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. Then he had power to give life unto the image of the beast and and the, the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. 
Let me just say, the, the American ideal of separation of church and state might well be the best that humanity alone can accomplish, right? Keep the, keep the political realm out of spiritual matters. But that separation is a brief experiment that is doomed to end. As this false prophet arises, verse 12 says he exercises all the power of the first beast before him. That word power in verse 12 is the Greek word exousia, and it means more than just power. It means authority also, or think of it this way. Exousia is both the ability and authority to execute your will or the will of the one who's giving you that authority. So the false prophet uses the authority of the Antichrist By the way, that's the nature of authority is that it sort of flows downward. Think of it like a a military chain of command, right? The, The lieutenant does what he does because he's been given authority to do it by the captain. And the captain does what he does because he's been given that authority from the general. And that's the nature of authority. Similarly, the false prophet works according to the authority of the Antichrist, and the Antichrist works according to the authority of, check verse 4, right? They worship the dragon which gave exousia to the beast, right? So at the end of verse 2, the dragon gave him his power and great exousia, authority. In this unrighteous chain of command, Satan gives authority to the Antichrist, and the Antichrist gives authority to, to the false prophet. Even history teaches us that when the religious leader like the false prophet receives his authority from a political leader like the Antichrist, nothing good follows that. When we re- religious issues, matters of faith, base their authority on a political power that gives them authority. What what good has ever come from such a thing? That's not where authority lies. Authority lies with God. Certainly, there's not going to be here any system of checks and balances. There's there's, There's not going to be any correcting the evils of one another. There's only going to be a mutual admiration society between the Antichrist and the false prophet. The Antichrist authorizes the false prophet's ministry. And in return, verse 12, the end of verse 12 says the false prophet naturally leads people then to worship the Antichrist. This false prophet will also have power from Satan to perform, verse 13 says, great wonders. He does great wonders. That word wonders is the exact same Greek word that John uses throughout his gospel to describe miracles which Jesus did. Now I understand some hesitation that translators might have in saying this false prophet can do great miracles, but when John uses that word, he knows what he meant as he uses it. This false prophet will be able to duplicate miraculous signs. And this should not surprise us. 
We've already seen this in Scripture. I remember back in Exodus, <coughs> when Moses entered into Pharaoh's throne room, he offered signs that God had authorized his call to free the Hebrew slaves. Remember one of those signs, he took his staff and he throws down his staff and it turns into a serpent miraculously. Well, what happens? Pharaoh's two magicians, later we come to know their names were Janus and Jambres, Pharaoh's two magicians throw down their own staffs and they also become serpents. Of course, Moses' snake proceeded to eat theirs and then turn back into a, a staff again, leaving them with no more staff, right? They're going to have to go look for another one. The lesson there is that Scripture does not deny that evil has power. Scripture simply denies that evil's power can ultimately triumph over the Lord. This is what Paul said to the church at Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians 2.9. He talks about the time of Antichrist coming. And he says that it will be, quote, after the working of Satan with all power and signs, miracles, and lying wonders. This is deception. I don't think it's deception in regard to the ability to do these signs, but it's deception in terms of how the false prophet uses this ability. The, the few prophets through Scripture who God had given the ability to do miraculous signs always did so in order to lead the people to repentance of their sin and turning to God in faith. But look at the end of verse 13, going into verse 14. Even when this false prophet has the ability to call down fire to earth as people watch... Verse 14 says, he deceives them that dwell on the earth by means of those miracles which he had the power to do. Here's what John MacArthur has to say about this. I, I liked this quote. He says, deceives there is from planeo, which means to wander. It forms the root of the English word planet, since planets appear to wander through the heavens the world will be utterly vulnerable to his deception during the tribulation. There will be unparalleled disasters, unimaginable horrors, leaving people desperate for answers and having rejected the true gospel and blasphemes the true God, the unbelieving world will be eager to believe the deceiving lies propagated by the false prophet. The world will be deceived. Now, before you start feeling sorry for the wicked world as it is deceived, it is a general truth of human life that people do what it is that they want to do. They find excuses for what it is that they want to do, but ultimately they do what they want to do. Specifically, John says the miracle that motivates the world to believe the false prophet is that he calls down fire to earth as they're watching. Well, why does John mention that one in particular? I think part of it is because we've seen that miracle before, right? 
In 1 Kings 18, Elijah called down fire before the prophets of Baal. In 2 Kings chapter 1, he called down fire from heaven to consume the wicked soldiers that were sent to arrest him. More recently, in Revelation 11 verse 5, it speaks of God sending these two righteous witnesses. And if any man would hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. Was the world so awed by those displays that they listened to the message of God's true prophets? No. People do what they want to do. And in this case, the fire called down from heaven is as much an excuse as it is a motivating factor. They listen to this false prophet because the message of this false prophet is what they want to believe. And following his deception, the false prophet causes those who live on the earth, it says that they should make an image of the beast. As unimaginable as it sounds, the world will return to literal idolatry, making an image, a a statue, an idol of the first beast, the Antichrist, in order to worship it, just like Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2, a great idol is built in honor of the Antichrist and everyone is expected to bow down and worship it. Now this is one of those places where, where John's original audience would have had an easy time believing that the world would turn to literal idolatry. They lived in a world that was exactly like that. We have a harder time imagining that the world will start bowing down and worshiping an idol. But that gets sort of switched around in verse 15. I think John's audience would have had a much more time, uh, much more difficult time believing verse uh, 15. And in turn, it's something that we don't have a hard time imagining at all. Look at verse 15. And he had given, and he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast, should be killed. Frequently in the Old Testament, idols were mocked for their inability to do anything. They couldn't move. They couldn't speak, right? The the idols were mocked to say, oh, you've, you've made them with ears, but they can't hear you. You've given them eyes, but they can't see you. You've given them mouths, but they can't speak to you. But something appears to change with this idol. The false prophet, John says, has the ability to give it life, or at least the appearance of life. It speaks, it moves. At the end of verse 15, it seems to say it even kills those who refuse to bow down and worship it. Just as a side note, friends, do not miss the blessing described there. The world as a whole is deceived, but there are still those who will not bow down and worship the image of the Antichrist. I would further suggest that where John's original audience would have had a difficult time imagining how a lifeless idol could live and move and talk and kill, we live in an age of technology where that's not hard to imagine at all. Just picture a massive idol 
designed in the image of the Antichrist, moving and walking and speaking, demanding worship from all those it encounters on penalty of instant death if you refuse. The false prophet seeks to promote the Antichrist and probably seeks to sort of ingratiate himself to this political leader. And he does it so that he uses his power and authority to set up this system of worship designed to honor the Antichrist and ultimately worship Satan himself. Look at his further actions, the false prophet's actions. His authority over this new religious system honoring honoring the Antichrist is not the limit to what he does. Pick up at verse 16. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that understand, has understanding count the number of the beast, for it's the number of a man, and his number is 603 score and six, or 666. Before delving into the details of the mark of the beast and this number 666, I, I, I don't want you to miss the deception and imitation of Satan that's being described. Look back, if you would, at, at Revelation 7, verse 3, for just a moment. In an earlier description of the tribulation period, <coughs> you'll see in Revelation 7, 3, there is this angelic message which is sounded, which says, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God in their foreheads. Or you can look forward into chapter 14, verse 1. And John writes then, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with them 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. I point this out because in Revelation 13, we're tempted to read this outside of the context of the whole, and to think things like, well, Satan has thought up this scheme of putting marks on the foreheads of of all his own, and everybody without the mark would face his wrath. But listen, that's not Satan's plan. That's God's plan. Satan is just imitating it. In chapter 7, before sending judgment, God said, mark those who are going to be protected. In the next chapter, there's 144,000 with the, the Father's name written on their foreheads and they're sealed, they're protected. Satan is imitating true righteousness. Satan is a great liar. He's a great counterfeit. He's created this unholy trinity to to lead the world's worship and he imitates the sealing of God's own by trying to mark his own, right? We get so fascinated with trying to, to figure out what this mark is that we fail to see that whatever it is, it is a sad imitation. God marks his own and so Satan decides he's going to do that too whether rich or, fo- or poor, slave or free, small or great, 
It is you take this mark in your forehead or your right hand and prove your loyalty to the Antichrist and his false prophet and to Satan or face Satan's wrath. And so to my thinking, as I try to imagine this as as best as we can, having this like massive murderous idol that's walking the earth killing God's saints who won't worship it, probably proves less successful than you might imagine. I mean, it's a frightening image, right? But this thing's not omnipresent. It's not going to have all of God's saints in front of it at one time. Exterminating righteousness off the earth one at a time is, is not a, a, a key to success, right? So it's shockingly alive, but it's not omnipresent. And so instead, there is this much wider, much grander scope plan of Satan. This system of marking those loyal to the Antichrist is is much more far-reaching. As the world falls under a single political system led by the Antichrist, then it falls under a single religious system led by the false prophet, it is only a small step further to create a single economic system where only those who are approved by the Antichrist government and the false prophet's religion are able to buy or sell or or trade or, or have any economic involvement. And so what is this mark of the beast? You know, if I can guess the questions in your head. Well, is it a microchip? Eh, maybe. I don't know. Is it a barcode tattooed on your head or on your hand? That was popular for a long time, but probably not. I mean, we've already, we've already become more sophisticated in the world than that, Right? After all, you can check me almost any day and I, I might have a cell phone in my right hand and even hold that thing up to my forehead. There's, there's a number associated with it. I can use it to buy and sell all kinds of things. But that's not a sign of my allegiance to the Antichrist. Don't go telling people that Pastor Jason said cell phones are the mark of the beast. I just, it, they're not. I'm just going to return to Jesus' promise that we mentioned last week. The elect will not be deceived. We will see these men for who they are and what they're doing. And furthermore, they'll know that the saints of God see them for who they are and what they're doing. God's saints will not bow down to that murderous idol. And so there's, there's this scheme to mark those who are loyal to Satan. In short, I don't think we can be certain what this mark is but it's clearly not something that is taken by accident. I know people who, through their lives, have been, oh, I'm so worried I might take the mark of the beast. You won't do it accidentally. The elect won't be fooled, and the lost won't need to be fooled. This is voluntary and purposeful. It's a sign of allegiance to the Antichrist. And without that sign, without the approval of his government, buying or selling anything will be virtually impossible. Picture this, food, clothes, medicine, God's saints are just like frozen out of the economic market. And if that seems unlikely or impossible to you, I wish you just could have experienced the 
the pure joy of trying to help international students who do not have a social security number get a legitimate job and move into the marketplace. Turns out that little number is a pretty important thing. So accomplishing this program of removing God's saints from the marketplace won't be hard. Now there is another number in this chapter that I think gets a considerable amount of attention and just brace yourself, I think I'm probably about to disappoint you. <coughs> Verse 18 says that there is a number for the beast and this number is 666. So what's that all about? And here's the simple answer. I keep giving you this three-word answer. We don't know. Because the Antichrist hasn't come yet. I know that historically this has gotten connected with social security numbers, IP addresses for internet access, the, the Roman Catholic Church. I've, had, I've seen where some people have pointed out, well, you know that all the license plates of taxi cabs in Israel start with 666. Well, no, they don't. But even if they did. You know, it gets associated with individuals like Hitler or Stalin or further back, many of the popes or in John's time, the Roman emperor Nero. But it's evident that this number is identifying an individual who has not come yet. And until the Antichrist comes, I think it's unlikely that we will completely grasp the meaning of this number. But. There are some things that we can understand from it. Listen to what John tells us, verse 18. It's the number of a man, and his number is 666. And there's this considerable amount of evidence that numbers in the Bible carry symbolic importance often. The number seven, for example, is the number of perfection or completeness. And so even in this, <clears throat> even in this book, God has a scroll with seven seals and there's seven trumpets and there's going to be seven vials of wrath poured out. And John says, this is the number of a man. We, we can't quite get to seven, right? We're not God's completeness and perfection. We fall short. And so this number six gets repeated three times. And again, the the idea of repetition in scripture is adding emphasis. The idea of, uh, of repetition three times is to get sort of the, to the, what we call the superlative, right? So think of it as good, better, best. Or as Isaiah says about God, it, it, you know, he's holy, holy, holy. In other words, he's holy, holy, or holiest. I know there's a a lot of interest and speculation about this number, but I really think, first off, it's not something we can grasp quite yet, but God's people will understand it clearly when the Antichrist comes. But second, John tells us the significance. It's the number of a man. He's, he's just a man. This wicked world is going to line up volunteering to worship him, and everything identifiable about this Antichrist shouts, he's just human, he's human, he's a man. Just a man, a wicked, powerful, vile man. But we worship Jesus, who is the perfect man, and so much more. So like John said earlier in the chapter, at, at verse 10, the end of verse 10, he said, here is patience and 
the, the faith of the saints. Or, or in other words, this calls for patience and faith. And now he says in verse 18, here is wisdom, right? This calls for wisdom. See this man for who he is and this sniveling false prophet, despite his lying wonders, see them both for who they really are. And know with certainty their ultimate end and the end of all of those who will follow them. Many times in Revelation, it's like you want to issue a a spoiler alert. Well, we're going to do that now because I I want you to look ahead at something. Because I don't want to just spend time in Revelation 13 to say, well, here's, yeah, let me tell you all about the Antichrist. Here, let let me tell you all about the false prophet. John has a reason for telling us about them and that reason becomes very obvious later. So Revelation 19, verse 20 And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped him his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And Satan does not escape this either. In, In chapter 20, verse 10, it says, The devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night, forever and ever. And so for all the talk of power and authority with Satan and the Antichrist and the the false prophet, there is an ultimate power, an ultimate authority, which they cannot hope to match. And that ultimate power is God himself and Jesus Christ who is coming to rule and reign on the earth. He will judge the earth He will commit them to the torments of hell and he will reign forever. Why would we want to spend a chapter, two weeks, right, learning all about the Antichrist, all about the false prophet? John wants us to know, here's the end result of these things. This is calling for judgment on the world it's calling for God's wrath against this wickedness don't be deceived by them 